0: Good morning. Well, I had a good night last night. I went over Paul and uh, his wife Sean's house for the married couples or those soon probably to be married, and this is my first one going to, and I just had a great time with the young couples. Uh, Paul did a great devotion, and just to meet. So some of the couples here, It was one couple there that they don't fellowship with us, but what stood out to me is that, and I've been told this by a couple of the young couples here, that we are the future of CR. <laughs> and I said, yes, you are. But to just see them, the closeness and, and the heart for the Lord. And then to be there and come here and, and they're pouring into ministry and all those things. It's just amazing. God is working here. I appreciate all you guys do. I appreciate that what you will continue to do. But I love the mixture we, we have here. And so I'm just thankful for that. We left off uh, John chapter 14, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. He had told them to let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, also believe in me. In my Father's house, there's many dwelling places. If it was not so, I would have told you, but I go and prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. And he's going through this farewell discourse. And we left off at verse 27 of chapter 14, and Jesus is saying, he says, before I begin, there's one more thing I wanted to say. It just came to mind. The men's conference I told you last week was just excellent, very good. I don't know if Pastor Jonathan mentioned this, and I don't know if he meant not to mention it because they didn't win. <laughs> but the cornhole tournament, David Hickey and Mark Morrow won. And I was, it really didn't matter to me which ones won because I didn't win, so no big deal. But we just had a great time with that. So I want to say, bless you guys. We enjoyed that. Back to something that matters. (laughs) Verse 27 of chapter 14. Jesus, once again, has finished his public ministry. He's closed the book. He's speaking privately to his disciples, and he's speaking privately to any believer this morning. It's an intimate setting, and he says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Shalom in the Hebrew, Arane in the Greek, was and is the unusual, the, really the usual Jewish greetings when friends met or parted with one another. And it was a sense of tranquility, a sense of well-being, a, a sense of wholeness, of health, mentally, spiritually, and physically. That's what they, the, the prayer was for them. And so Jesus' farewell word of peace was different from that which was current in the world and also in the world today. He says, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. And our English word peace is generally applied to the absence of any kind of strife or conflict. And we, we like that. But Jesus' meaning of peace here is much different than a Wells wishers friendly word. Jesus' peace is not, once again, not like the world peace. He will tell us in chapter 16, verse 33 of John, uh, that in me you may have peace. So peace is not an absence of conflict because he says in Matthew 10, 34, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. All but one of the apostles will die a martyr's death. And we know the beloved John will not. So what he called my peace was something different and deeper and more lasting. It's a peace that will banish any kind of fear or anxiety if we allow the Lord to settle down with us. Paul speaks to this in effect when he says, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Once again, a peace that arbitrates or umpires in the hearts of the believers, maintaining harmony among them, even in the midst of storms and trials. Paul also says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Jesus is leaving his disciples a peace that stands guard, stands sentinel over their hearts and minds, preventing any anxiety from gaining an entrance. He says let not your heart be troubled neither let it be afraid. And so can you imagine the disciples they're already anxious because Jesus has told them that I'm leaving you. He also says I'm sending you a comforter and they can't seem to just to understand the full picture of this right now. All they can understand is he's leaving. And so God is trying to calm their fears and and let them know that everything is going to be all right. And he tells us in verse 28, you have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I am going going to the father for my father is greater than I. And some have claimed that the statement that The Father is greater than I proves that Jesus didn't claim deity or equality with God, but that's not at all true. What it does show is his subordination to the Father, his function, his role as being the the Son, but he's he's as much equal in essence as God the Father, as the Son is. And he says in verse 29, And now I have told you before it comes. That when it does come to pass, you may believe. He knows they're in shock. He knows they truly don't understand what's going on. And this is prophecy. And I love the prophetic word because prophecy lets us know whatever the prophets have said through God, that when it happens, God is in control. And even now, Jesus is prophesying, saying, these things are going to happen. So when they do take place, Do not let your faith be shipwrecked because I've let you know that they're coming and you need to brace yourself. And in all the midst of the storms and the trials, remember that I'm going to be there for you and I'm going to be there with you in an intimate, special way, which is going to come through the power of the Holy Spirit into their lives. He says, I will no longer talk much with you. I won't be around face to face physically much with you any longer. For the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. One translation says, no hold on me, no power over me. Literally, in me, he does not have anything. No secret power, no sin to accuse Jesus of. You know, I've watched enough drama movies. And I know about people getting blackmail, And what Jesus is saying, usually if they are ransoming whoever they've kidnapped or anything, they have a price to pay. And what Jesus is saying, the enemy has nothing in me to accuse me, to blackmail me with, so that I will give in to him. I'm free of anything. There's no hold on me. Satan has no leverage over me. That's what he says here. But that the world may know that I love the Father. And as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Jesus' obedience to the Father shows his love for the Father. That's what obedience always does. And this is part of the glory of the cross. Once again, it demonstrates the love within the Godhead that has existed before the beginning of the world. And then he says something, if you're just reading through it, it might, it might seem strange. He says, arise, let us go from here. The question is, do they leave the upper room at this point in time when Jesus Continues his discourse. Some theologians say they do. Others say he says this and then they sit a little longer. And he has this discourse. It really doesn't matter. Most the reason most say that they do arise and they begin to leave is because he begins to talk about the grapevine and the things that's in the sanctuary in the tabernacle. But he could have been sitting in the upper room. And explaining all of this because he's been there many of times. We have to understand that the doors of the tabernacle was about 60 foot high. And around those doors wound these golden grape vines all the way to the top. Grape vines were everywhere displayed in the sanctuary. There were clusters of grapes made of pure gold. And during the Passover when all the pilgrims would come. And we have to understand that some of these people that would come during the Passover would be there once in a lifetime. And so the priest and those who ran the sanctuary, ran the temple, they would leave the doors to the sanctuary open so the people day or night could enter in and, and just see the uh, the. The the everything that was displayed in there and worship God there. So they were looking at these vines that surrounded the doors of the tabernacle. Josephus, matter of fact, said in the midrash, he speaks of a western entrance into the Temple Mount, and on the west side of the altar, there on one of the gates, were hanging these huge clusters of grapes taller than a man. He says they were golden grapes, and they were also wrapped around the gates there. And if you would leave the, the tabernacle as you would go to the Mount of Olives, there would be great vineyards all around that area. And you remember when uh, Joshua sent out the spies, the Valley of Eskel, and they brought these huge grapes back. And what the Lord and what they knew is that ancient Israel was considered the vineyard or the vine of Jehovah. That's what it meant to them. Psalms 80, you can look at that, verses 8 through 11, speaks of the vine of God. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 speaks of that. I'm going to read verses 1 through 2. This is what Yahweh says. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. So he lets us know it's fertile and ripe. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. So when Jesus confronts these religious leaders in the last days before his crucifixion, as the synoptic gospel tells us, Jesus will give a scathing rebuke to these religious leaders about his vineyard. He tells us in Matthew, a landowner who planted a vineyard, and set a hedge around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. And he begins to lease it out to the vine dressers. And it says, and he went into a far country. Vintage time finally came. He tells us, so he sent owners, his servants, to gather the fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, Jesus tells us beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Jesus sends more, and they do the same. And then finally, Jesus is telling these religious leaders, he sends his son. And he says, I'm sending my son because surely they will respect him. But you know the scenario. They say, come, let us kill him, and the vineyard will be ours. He says this to the religious leaders. He says, what will he do to those vine dressers? They condemn their own self. They said, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. And it says, and they perceived that Jesus was speaking of them. He's about to set the docket straight on who's the true vine. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 15, I, and I believe he was pointing at himself, either sitting still in the upper room or as he goes down toward the Mount of Olives through the Temple Mount, and he's in front of those huge doors, and he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. And this is the last of Jesus' seven I am statements here. We have to understand as we get into chapter 15 that this is a parable. It's an idiom. It's a metaphor. And one thing about parables, you have to be sure that when you're reading a parable that you, you can't build doctrine on parables. It's sort of like this or that. And, and what he's speaking of This is about abiding. Anything you get out of these verses about the true vine, Jesus wants to let you know and understand you must abide in him. The vine, which is Jesus Christ. And and, and he gathers all of the resources of his father and he gives it to the branches. He is the mediator. He tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is the means by which we access all of the resources of heaven. That's the only way for a spiritual, fruitful life. And so what he does, he's contrasting himself with the nation of Israel and specifically those religious leaders in Israel. Because if you look at the scriptures clearly through Genesis to Revelation, there's three vines. There's the vine of Israel that we just looked at in Isaiah 5 that should have brought forth fruit but they did not. And then there's the vine of the earth that you will find in Revelation. I think around uh, Revelation chapter 14, the Bible says, and one of the angels went into the earth and pulled out the vine of the earth, and that's woven through the world. That's, that's the, all of the machinations of the enemy and all of his schemes, how he tries to scheme against the entire world. That's the vine of the earth that many will run after. And then he says, there's the genuine vine, and that's me. And that's who he's pointing at. As he says this, he says, the nation of Israel has failed because I have set them up. Everything is fixed. Everything was ripe for the nation of Israel to flourish. We've just read it. He dug the winepress put them in the choice vine, put in the choice vine, and they brought forth wild fruit. And they should have been a light to the world, a light to the nation of the goodness and the kindness of God. If we obeyed and follow after him, blessings will come. But they did not do that. And so Jesus, as we know, comes from heaven And he says, Father, I will do your will. And he says, that's the vine we need to go after. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. A vine dresser is to a vineyard what a gardener is to a garden. And what a gardener is to a garden is a killer of wild plants, if you're a gardener like me. I can't grow anything. But that's not our God. Our God, he goes into the in the vineyard, he goes into the garden and he labors over it. He, he tenderly takes care and 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 turns over the soil and, and fertilizes it and, and just dotes over his vineyard. Because he loves his vineyard. That's how God works. That's the way our Father is. Because God doesn't want us to eke out a miserable Christian life here. He doesn't want us to do that. He wants our lives to be fruitful here. Fruit is mentioned eight times in this chapter, and I want you to note the progression here. Verse 2, he will speak of fruit. And in that same verse, he will speak of more fruit. And then verse 5, he will speak of much fruit, verse 5 and 8. So he wants us to bring forth fruit. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. The Father removes the fruitless branches. The phrase in me does not mean the same as Paul's word, because if you think that you'll you'll get a little confused When Paul uses the words, in Christ, I'll give you an example. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, we are in Christ. Remember, once again, this is a metaphor. This is a parable, and you can't build doctrine on parables, The vine seems to be and seems to mean every person who professes, Jesus says, to be my disciple, a branch, is not necessarily, this is a true fact, a true believer. A branch that bears no fruit is obviously dead. That's what he's saying here. Therefore, and he brings this back to Judas. Judas, once again, has seen the miracles, probably worked some miracles, did all of those things. But at the end, he was cut off. And he says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And we will get into that a little more in verse 6. And then he says, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. The Greek word katharizo. We get the word catheter. Uh, to, to, to remove poison, maybe from the body. It means to clean or to cleanse. But it also means, can mean to purge or to prune. And I, in my opinion, that's what he means by this. It means essentially the removal of something. So here the father comes, he says, and he prunes us. And why does he do that? That it may bear more fruit. Now, I personally, once again, don't agree that he's speaking of cleansing, washing the vine or either the grapes at this point. I don't think he's speaking of that right now. Because in that climate, in that culture, those people, when they would go through or go past the vineyard, There wasn't any washing in the vineyard, but what there was, the image of removing branches from the vine, putting them in piles and burning them up. Those were the images all around. The disciples knew that. God doesn't just prune us to hear us say, ouch. He doesn't do that. He prunes us in order that we might bear more fruit. And when we bear more fruit, or fruit at all, we bring glory to his name. And I don't know about you, but pruning is not a bad thing. I might not like it while I'm being pruned, but I love the results. Because if we're honest in our walk with the Lord, we sometimes can become stagnant in our walk. We sometimes can become complacent in our walk. And every time I start to feel like that's happening to me, my father loves me so much that he says, okay, it's time to prune you. So like I've told you, I don't like being pruned. It's not a bad thing. So every time I start to settle in and think I'm okay, everything is going fine, I have to watch out because a pruning is coming and he begins to produce more fruit, and he begins to cut off sin in my life. I can understand that. But he also does something that is very confusing to me. Sometimes he will cut away those things that are lawful for me to be engaged in as a Christian. But for me to be engaged in them, he doesn't want me to be engaged in them. And so he cuts them off. And my issue is, I, I because I have a running conversation with the Lord, I say, Lord, why are you pruning me and taking this out of my life? And it's not a bad thing, but yet and still I see others, they're doing it, and, I, and you're fine with them doing it. And you know what he tells me. That's why it's so important. Be careful how you judge people. Just because he says, hey, you can't do it. He might tell them it's fine with them. And so when I ask him that question, and I ask him that question a lot, he says, because I'm the vine dresser and you're the vine, you're the branch. And I said, okay, Lord, I understand. No, 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 need to, no need to argue with him. I just need to do what? Pick my row of peas and continue to walk. That's aggravating for me, but I understand what he says here. But the interesting things about grapevines, that's very important. If you leave them, if you don't tend to them often, year by year, their branches can run at least 100 yards or more. And what that does, if you don't prune them and if you don't take care of them, the branches begin to suck the life from the fruit. And what the Lord wants is not just a lot of fruit, but good fruit, whole fruit, the gum, juicy fruit. <laughs> yeah, he wants those big, great, big clusters of fruit that I used to pick as a little boy. And some was sweet and some wasn't. But he wants our fruit to be sweet. So what does he do? He prunes He cuts back to the quick, and it hurts a little bit. But what he's doing, he's allowing us to produce better fruit, and that's what he wants. Because as believers, you can believe this, we are only really good at one or two things in the kingdom of God. We're not good at several things. You might think you are when it applies or when it it, it, it pertains to the kingdom of God. But really, we're only good at one or two things. And God will continue to prune our lives in order to keep our lives focused on those one or two things that he has gifted us to do. Otherwise, once again, all of our energy will go into the wood. And that's not good. Because remember what Paul said, all of the things we do that are wood, hay, or stubble will be burned up, won't be fit for the kingdom. We get no reward for those things. So he prunes our lives, even the lawful things sometimes. He prunes in order that we might be fruitful. He says in verse 3, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Jesus has said to his disciples early, earlier in chapter 10, 13, he says, He who is bathed needs only to be to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. God's word, when received, has a washing, cleansing, faith-producing atmosphere or effect on our lives. That's why... I know he's not speaking of washing here, he's speaking of pruning here. Matter of fact, Ephesians chapter 5 tells us, Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. And Jesus begins to speak about the importance of abiding. And we all need to hear this because we all need to abide better. Abiding will be repeated 10 times between verses 4 and 10. Jesus says in verse 4, abide in me and I in you. That's a command. That's just not an automatic condition. That means we have to do something to obey the command. And it's not a work of righteousness in order to be saved. But if we are saved, we will abide. It's an active faith. It's a walking faith. He says, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So the key to fruitfulness in the Christian life is abiding. The Greek word is "meno." It means to settle down, to make yourself at home. Make yourself at home where? In the vine, next to Christ, hooked up with him. That's abiding. My question is to you this morning, do you, do we act differently when we leave this building Or are we acting differently six days and when we come into the building, we act a different way? I think sometimes I act one way and then when I get into the car, I take a sigh and I say, now I can be myself for six days. (laughs) Be careful. Jesus is saying, this is abiding That the same behavior and the same way and the same way I parse my words and make sure I'm polite when I'm at church is the same way I should act when I'm away. Because the vine is still there. That's abiding. That's what he's asking. That's what he wants. He wants us to and some of us may be old enough to remember this. He wants us to settle down, take your shoes off, and sit a spell. Anybody get that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's abiding. That's what he wants us to do. Throughout your day, while you're on your job, in class, at home, It's no on-again, off-again relationship. He wants consistency because consistency in the vine is abiding. It's no backsliding here and there, but it's abiding. That's what he's calling for here. We're connected to the vine, aren't we? That's what he's saying. And Jesus is saying that fruitfulness comes out of that kind of relationship with him. It's like being in a vineyard and all of a sudden you're walking through the vineyard and you see just nice, great clusters, full and juicy. And you begin to say, where did this cluster of grapes come from? And you follow that branch all the way back, 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 back to where? To the vine. That's how these grapes are produced. And all of the glory doesn't go to the branch. It goes to the vine. That's what Jesus wants. That's why we're here as believers, to glorify him. And he will say that. It goes all the way back to the vine, and it gives God the glory. Everything is tied to the health of our union with Jesus Christ. We need to spend more time on that union, on that health, Of our union. If we abide, then we don't have to worry about producing fruit. It comes naturally, and all of the pressure comes off of us. He says in verse 5 I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I am him bears much fruit, for without me, you can do nothing. Oh, come on, Lord, surely I can do something. Have you looked at my SAT scores? Have you looked at where I graduated from? I can do some things. The Lord says, 1 Corinthians tells us, no, you don't, because all of that comes from me. When Jesus tells us, when the Holy Spirit tells us we can do nothing without him, of course, he's speaking about those things that flow to the kingdom of God. That's what he's speaking of, because those are the things that matter. I've tried many of times to do things, ministry, on my own. I've got this. I'm okay, Lord. And he quickly shows me I can do nothing without him. Finally, I had to get from what he's saying here to Philippians, where he says, I can do all things through Christ Jesus That's who strengthens me. That's the ticket. That's the key. If I put him first, everything that he wants me to do, I will be able to do. But apart from God, we can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. A lot of people look at this verse and say, is that talking about believers who have known the Lord, and now they get cut off as branches and burned? Or is he talking about hell? Or someone like Judas, who professed, looked like he knew the Lord at that time, and as time passed, revealed that he didn't know him at all. I'm here to tell you there's a running debate on what he's saying here as it relates to verse 6. To be honest, I don't have an answer for you. I have my opinion, and I have a very good opinion, (laughs) but I I can't be dogmatic about it. But we're going to look at this text, and I believe if we truly diagnose the text you'll get your answer. The key to not ever, and this is where I like to live, having to wonder or worry about verse 6. And if you have, you never need to again if you do this one thing, and that's to have a close, personal walk with Jesus. Because when you have that close and personal walk with Jesus Christ, then you don't have to worry about verse 6. Amen? Don't have to worry about it at all because we're not living our lives in a gray area in my relationship with the Lord. So this is a sobering statement, and I believe Jesus is gracious enough and kind enough to say, check yourself, examine your walk, and make sure that you're abiding in me. Now, once again, this is a picture of our lives. Our lives are made to produce fruit. And if we're not producing fruit, that should instantly reveal to us that we have an an abiding issue because there should be fruit in our lives. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, You will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. So the abiding life is the abundant life, and we all want that abundant life. The abiding life translates into an effective prayer life, and I know we all want that. But the question is, why is my prayers more effective when I'm abiding because I'm allowing God's word to abide in me, then and only then do I know how to really pray. I know how to pray in the accordance and in the will of God. So it allows me to pray in the line with the will of God. My prayers are lined up. My prayers will be his prayers. And it helps me to understand who Jesus is so that when I pray, I know how to pray, and I'm praying in the nature of Jesus Christ. And when I'm praying in the nature and the will of Jesus Christ, he just told me, my prayers will be effective, and my prayers will be answered. To ask the Father the things Jesus would ask, that's an effective prayer life. James tells us the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So when I'm abiding in him and his words abide in me, what a difference my prayers make. There's confidence. There's fervency because I'm right with the Lord. I know this has never happened to you guys, so I'll take all of the blame for it because it's happened to me once or twice. You ever led a home group And you've just got into an argument and the families are coming over and and, and it's, God, why do I have to get into that argument now? And then all of a sudden, I just pray, Lord, please forgive me. I was wrong. And then the heavens open up from its bronze until I can have, I can communicate with the Lord. And we're okay. But worse than that, have you ever led a prayer meeting, driving there, you're leading one, and you get in an argument? It's the same thing. That's a miserable way or time for that to happen. But it happens. It's never happened to you guys. It's happened to me. So you have to quickly throw up that flare prayer and pray, and you get right back in there. And the Lord is there, and he's listening. Now, I said all that to say this now that I'm finished telling on myself. It matters how we live. You've been praying for something. You've been praying for something. And, you, and someone comes up to you that you know you haven't seen in a while. And, you, and you've heard that they've backslid. And they're living the life of, in a life of sin. And they said, hey, I heard about what's going on in your life. And I'm praying for you, Vic. And you know how I take that? Hmm, yeah, okay. I'm not too... It doesn't help me out any because I know how they're living. But if someone comes up to me and I'm going through something and I know they have a close walk with the Lord and they say, Look, I'm praying for you, my heart just soars with joy and expectancy. Why? Because I know they are believers. I know they are connected to the true vine, and I know that the Lord will listen to their prayers. It makes a difference. That's why Jesus is saying that. But if you're living just any kind of life, you don't have to pray for me, because the Lord's probably not listening to you anyway. That's my point, and that's what Jesus is wanting them to understand. It matters that we are connected, not every once in a while, but we stay connected to the true vine. And he hears our prayers on behalf of us, and he answers our prayers. It may not happen when we want it, but sooner or later, he will answer them in the perfect time. Just stay connected. That's why he says in verse 8, by this, by what? Because what I've been praying for and I've been abiding and I've been asking, and then when it comes to fruition and the whole world, even in my sphere, sees it, they're going to say, that boy's connected. That boy knows something. And I'm going to say, you're right. I know nothing. I just know the great king. I know him. That's That's all I need to know. That's why he says, by this my Father is glorified. It brings glory to his name when we bear fruit. That's what he's saying here, because we're connected to him. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Now, let's define what fruitfulness is. Being fruitful Is being like Jesus. Now, that's a high bar. That's why it's not about striving. It's not about working, trying to get there. It's about being a born-again believer and allowing the Holy Spirit. He will come and he will indwell us. He will do the work. Galatians 5 tells us this, verse 22 and 23. But the fruit... Of the Spirit, and the way I read that, the fruit singular of the Spirit is love. He's been saying, A new commandment I give you, not to love love others as you love yourself, but this is the great commandment to love me, others as I have loved you. That's what he's harping on. And now he says here, But the fruit of the Spirit is love. And out of love flows peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what we should be walking around in the midst of. Not only here, but at the workplace, at our homes, at school, at the universities. That's what we should have on display And when we have that on and we're displaying that, it brings glory to the Father. That's what he wants. This is a fruitful life. And this is a description of the Lord Jesus himself. So fruitfulness, in a nutshell, is Christ-likeness in my life. And because I have a Christ-likeness in my life, then the ministry that God has has carved out for me the one or two things I do okay will be fruitful because I'm abiding in the vine and it comes naturally. That's what he's saying here. That's my ministry. He says in verse 9, as the Father loved me, now this blows me away, I also have loved you. No believer, no believer should have an insecurity issue. Not, not just re- by reading that verse. Jesus loves me the way the Father loves him. David says, if my mother or father forsakes me, God is there. He's all we need. He gives me everything I need. My support, my anchor, in distress, in famine, in trials, in tribulations. I'm hooked up to the true vine, and he's all I need. I didn't say it. He says it here. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. That should be easy, to abide in love. We we like to abide in mess. Jesus says, abide in my love. And then he says, he shifts gears slightly. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments, the reason the father knows the son loves him is why? Because he obeys everything the father tells him to do. I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, this is very important right here. Again, how do we abide? I I understand the importance of abiding. I understand the importance of a relationship with him. But how does one ensure, how does one ensure the health of that relationship? It's very simple. Obey. You should have known sooner or later I was going to get to that. It's all about obedience. To obey God's word. Abiding, Victor Hour, abiding is obeying. To simply obey God's word, and that ensures the health of our relationship with Him. And as I obey God's commandments, and as I abide in Him, I'm abiding in the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. What we have to understand about his commandments every single commandment that the Lord has given us is for us. It's because he loves us. And in order that we obey his command, the full expression of his love might be poured out upon us when we obey him. He has great and precious gifts. He wants to bless us with. As I was thinking about this, it's because I can look back on my life. It's like a parent that has all of the resources, all of their resources they want to lavish on their children. But if your parents are like my parents, they're not going to lavish any of those resources on you Unless you're living a pretty good life, you're following the Lord. I probably, I'm sure I've told you guys this before. When my, They were burying my brother. I was an unbeliever. He was saved, and we, were in the, we lived in Kula. And it was the day, no, it was that day. I'm not going to lie. It was the day of his funeral, and I'm standing on the other side of the shed, And I've got a bottle of gin in my hand the day of the funeral, and I'm drinking this gin, and my dad comes out, and he says, Boy, I'm not going to leave you anything, because all you're going to do is squander it away and give it to somebody else. And I just looked at him. We went to the funeral, all that stuff. But I understand, and that's what the Father is saying. I have all of these resources, but I'm not going to give them to you because you're not obeying. You're going to squander. Remember the children of Israel. You are supposed to be the light of the world that all of the other nations will come and say, why are you being blessed? And you can tell them about me. He says the same thing here. A disobedient child is probably the cruelest thing a parent will ever have to deal with because a disobedient child, if they're any kind of parents, will give them nothing but the bare minimum when they have so much to lavish on them if they would obey. That's what Jesus is saying here. Abide in me because I want to bless you and I can't bless you in your disobedience. And I'm not talking about walking in perfection. Once again, I'm talking about following the Lord. We slip and fall. We stumble. He's not speaking about that. He's speaking of living a lifestyle of disobedience. He says, no, 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 no. I'm not going to bless you in these things. Why would I bless you? People are seeing you. People know you are a believer and you're living this kind of life. And if I bless you and continue to bless you, they're going to say, hey, I'll be a Christian. Then I can live any way I want to. And no big deal. You can't find that in Scripture anywhere. That's what Jesus is saying here, you guys. He wants to lavish blessings on us. And you know what? There's an old hymn. I think it's a hymn. Under the spout It's where one translation says is where the glory comes out. Another verse says "Is where the blessings come out. Not five feet away in disobedience, living that way. Not 10 feet away in disobedience. You're not getting those blessings, Blessings, but walking in a sphere of the Lord, following him, blessings comes. That's all he's saying here. People have twisted it to name it and claim it, but there's no name it and claim it right here. Paul says... That in Christ, we have all of the spiritual blessings in heaven. I'm talking about not only spiritual blessings, but blessings that come upon our lives because the Lord wants to bless us. And it's up to him how much. But he's not going to bless us living a lifestyle of disobedience. And while you're living that lifestyle of disobedience, he's saying, hey, watch out. Be careful. Abide in me. I want you to abide in me because my heart, the father's heart is to bless us. He's not the Godfather, as John Corson would say. He wants to bless us. And that's what he's speaking of here. He wants to bless us. The commandments are given in order that he blesses us and he wants us to be a blessing to others. So he says in verse 11, these things I have spoken to you. That my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. Excuse me? Did you catch that? That my joy might remain in you? This is the night before the cross. This is the night before the cross. The next evening, he will have been beaten so much, that that isaiah tells us that he doesn't even look like a man and he says that my joy will be in you how can that be when trials come sometimes i just wither up lord where are you i thought you loved me but i need to gird up the loins of my mind and says lord As long as you're with me and as long as I'm connected to you, there's joy there. And what is joy? What is he speaking of here? The joy of being in the Father's will. That's what Jesus is speaking of, so I have to ride with him. Once again, in 14 hours, he will be beaten to a pulp. And he's speaking of, I have a joy inside of me. I know what's coming, and I'm still full of joy, and I want to give you this joy. No matter what it means, joy, no matter if I get my way, if I get my prayer, if I get my wish, no matter what it means, joy is to be in the Father's will. That's what he means by this. Don't look for anything else. Joy is to be in the Father's will. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, being an unbeliever, and loses his soul? I'd rather be under that bridge in a cardboard box and can lay my head on a pillow and say, I'm all right with you, Lord. I have peace and I have joy because I'm connected to the vine. That's what he's saying here. It doesn't matter circumstances. It shouldn't matter situations or circumstances. What matters if I'm walking, am I connected to the true vine? You know, people say all the time, They ask the question, do you have a personal relationship with the Lord? And I understand that. I get it because I was raised in a church and uh, blessed to be under good teaching, good doctrine. But I was thinking about that. That's really, I might change up on that. Because if you really look at it, everyone has a relationship with the Lord. Everyone, even the unbeliever, has a relationship, might not be a good one. Because they're going to stand in front of him one day. So I believe I'm going to say, are you connected to Jesus Christ? Are you connected to him? Are you walking with him? Then you will be fruitful here. And that's what counts. He says in verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. So he comes back to this theme of love then he says, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friend. He has said, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd will lay his life down. He says, you are my friends if you do whatever whatever I command you. Philos, dear friend, I'm fond of you. I love my westerns. I, I always tell you guys about Tombstone, and one of my favorite scenes in Tombstone... I, I really don't. I tried to pull it up last night. I couldn't find it. I don't know where, I, I forget where uh, Wyatt Earp were, was at this time, but it was Doc Holliday, and he's hanging around his boys. They get in a shootout, and after this shootout, they run the, the other gang away, and they're, they're drinking their coffee and whatever, and the guy asked Doc Holliday, he says, uh, Doc, why are you doing this? Why are you out here? They're not after you. They're, they're after Wyatt Earp. And he says, because Wyatt herb is my friend. And then the other guy says, Shh, shoot. He said another word. He said, shoot, I've got plenty of friends. And then he said, I don't. <laughs> I love that. I love that. This is great. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, check this out. I'm not calling you a servant. I'm calling you a friend. Used to all the way up. Till I became a believer at the age of 32, God is my witness, I never had one friend, not one. And I knew that. hung around people, but friends, not one. And as I was thinking about this, I can say I have several friends now that I'm a believer. But my point is I have one friend who sticks with me like a brother, who will never leave me for... Or forsake me. And I understand Doc Holliday when he says, I don't. I've got one, and that's Jesus Christ. And I will lay my life down for him. And Jesus says, if I'm connected to that true vine, I'll lay my life down for my brethren. He says, no longer do I call you servants. For a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all... Things that I heard from my father, I have made known to you. The father's plan of salvation and what he's saying in this farewell discourse. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Now, I want you to bask in that. You did not choose me, but I chose you. We've covered a few hard things this morning, but bask in what Jesus is saying here to us. Remember, when we were dead in trespasses and sins, the Bible says, in which you once walked. That word walked, peripateo. It means to walk aimlessly. It means to meander. I'm going to the left. I'm going to the right. I'm just going in all kinds of directions. And when he says, in the course of this world, it means the weather vane of this world. It means wherever Satan drove me, I was meandering I was going. That's what I was steeped in. That's what you guys were steeped in until the Lord reached down and says, I want you. I'm choosing you. That's nothing but grace. I never thought of him one time until he drew me. That's what he's saying here. After he's told them all of these things, tough times are coming, but you're going to be okay. I'm sending, the, I'm sending the spirit, a comforter, Allah, one just like me, And he's going to be with you. And if you abide in me, and I've ordained you to abide in me. And you're going to bring forth fruit. And you're going to glorify my father by bringing forth these fruit. And then remember, of all these things, I've chosen you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. The same word remain is abide. It's the same word minnow, that you will abide. These are God's headed for a Tough time and a tough life. And our Savior spoke to them like He speaks to us when He first saved us, and how He's saying now, whatever you're about to run into, however feeble you may feel in the face of life, whether it's a divorce, whether it's a heartache, whether it's betrayal, even death, He's saying, I want you to know. That I chose you. And I knew what I was getting when I chose you. And everything is going to be all right because of the result of my choosing. Doesn't matter what everybody else thinks. It doesn't even matter what I think of myself. What what matters is what God thinks of me. And he's chosen me. The worship team can come up. The only thing I can put even close to the Lord's choosing me, and I've told you this before because it blows me away. In middle school, and even up to now, I can't hit a softball at all. I mean, you think the thing is this big, like a grapefruit, you should be able to hit it. I could never hit it. Until this day, I can't hit it. Ask the softball coach over there. I, I can't hit it. But I had friends. Terry Holcomb on the baseball team, and we were real tight. And no matter what, he says, don't worry about it, Victor. You're my friend, and I'm going to choose you. And of course, the last one being chosen, but I knew I was going on his team. I I didn't even have to worry. He was going to choose me. That's what the Lord sees with me and you also. He doesn't see perfect people He doesn't see people that has everything in order, have their lives in order. Most of the time, he found us, lives were a mess and a wreck. And even if we were pretty good people, so-called, in our hearts we weren't. And he chose us. And by his, let me leave you with this, by his choosing us, he's ordained us. We're going to bear fruit. We're going to bear fruit. I look like my dad because he's my dad. John Corson said this, Ben, you know it. Ben, you're going to have a big nose. And the reason you're going to have a big nose, Ben, is because your father has a big nose. (laughs) I did not look like my dad for 24 years. I used to ask my mom, is is he my dad? I, I look nothing like him. But by the time I hit 24, I stopped looking like my mom and I look exactly like my dad. That's what Jesus is saying here. We might struggle here. We might struggle there, but continue to abide, continue to hang on. Because if you stay there and allow the Lord to work in your lives, you're going to look like the sun. You can't help but to look like him. You can't help but to bear fruit. If we just hang on in the tough times, in the good times, just hang on. And it's not stressing. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Just stay connected. You're going to bear fruit. You're going to look just like him. Father, there may be some who don't believe that. But Lord, I'll let you deal with them. Because I know that I know that I know one day when I see you I'm going to be just like you. But until that day there's glimpses there's moments and seasons and days and I hope for years that more and more we're becoming like you. We have to because we're connected. And you're Not a God that you should lie. So, Lord, I pray for everyone here that might be struggling with looking more and more like Jesus Christ. I pray that, first of all, make sure you're abiding. There's no stress in abiding. We just hang out with you. We just hang out with you and allow you to to change our lives, change our character. We're already born again, but the fruit of that, we will display the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. Lord, we all need to look like you more. That means we need to settle down, take your shoes off, and sit a spell and allow you to have your way with us. And we will, we will bring glory to your name and glorify you. We love you, Lord. And I ask all of these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to the Father God. Amen. Let's stand and close with a song, please.